I have a six-year-old that's really into learning, learning books, learning apps, learning shows, but I'm really grateful to have found a learning podcast for her. From the creators of the hit kid podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited to a secret order of problem solvers. On an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. My kid really appreciates these. They're only 15 minutes long, and she can stay engaged. She likes the characters. It's perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kids won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Okay, Bethany, first of all, thank you for being here. And the reason why I wanted you to tell your story is because I talk a lot about boundaries on my TikTok and boundaries aren't what most people think they are. We usually think of boundaries as, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this. And that can be what boundaries look like. But there's just a lot of pop psychology. And I think that you have a really great story about you and your dad about boundaries that shows the nuances and the complexities that come when we get out of talking about boundaries as this sort of esoteric, like hard line thing about like, well, you just, you know, don't put up with that or, oh, never abandon that person and look at them as stories of real people in real relationships that are neither good nor bad. So I have this flowchart that I use that I talk to people about like this decision-making process. And it was similar to the decision-making process that you went through with your own dad. And so I thought we could just kind of start at the beginning as a way of telling that story. Okay. Okay. So the first question in this relationship decision tree is, is this behavior acceptable to you? No. So let's talk about your dad's behavior. Like why is this the story we're telling? So... I think one thing that's important to note is that my dad was in Vietnam. He was drafted when he was 18 and he was on the ground in the jungle with a machine gun. And I think it had a very real impact on the man he became. So my parents divorced when I was five. He was not a nice man. I don't know the details. I suspect there was some physical abuse. I loved my dad. I just adored him. When they got divorced when I was nine, we moved out of state. My dad Uh, remarried. She was not a nice woman. She had a daughter. I had a stepsister. And essentially my dad, and he admitted this, that he, that was his family. And I was just an add-on basically. Now I know that he loved me, but I didn't fit the mold. My stepsister was beautiful, blonde hair, big blue eyes, pretty lips. She was skinny, like the whole thing. And I was just kind of a chunk my whole life. You know, what's interesting is I always felt like he called me fat. I don't think he ever outright said I was fat, but here's what I discovered. When he just kind of fast forward to, he was in a nursing home recently and he was talking about one of the nurses and he, I was like, which one dad? He was like, you know, the fat one. And I was like, oh, okay. Yes, that's it. Like it was clear that I never fit the mold, but I, I mean, the truth is I just adored him. So we had a very strange relationship. He always thought I was just too sensitive. I always got my feelings hurt. You know, we went on a cruise. He took me on a, it was very generous. He bought me a car when I was 16. We went on a cruise. You know, he gave us all 16th birthday cruises. And, you know, I was an alcoholic out of the gate. (laughs) 
I was drinking at the bar. He didn't know he was drinking. I was sneaking it. And his comment to me was, quit whoring around the bar, you know, 16 years old. So this is the way that he talked to me. Now, he also had very redeeming qualities. He was really funny, really smart, really successful. And like, I loved him. And I just always wanted him to be proud of me. And it just seemed like he was very, very critical. I remember when I was in high school, I said, man, I would win the lottery wrong. Like there would be nothing I could do. <laughs> I'm for real. I just thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, I'd be so proud of something. Like when I got a puppy for my 16th birthday, oh man, it's all I ever wanted was this puppy, this golden retriever puppy. And I called him and I said, dad, guess what? I got a puppy. And he said, don't you think you're a little old for a puppy? I mean, it was just kind of just, it was almost like it was, he was chipped away very slowly. Again, I knew he loved me and he did other things for me. He showed his love by buying me things and not not a, whole, not a lot of things, but big things. Like certain things were very important to him. I had a real good case of alcoholism and drug addiction and went to treatment uh, when I was 20. And this is when it really started to deteriorate. Although, I don't know, I think probably in high school it did too because I felt so discarded by his family. And he, and like I said, he admitted it. When I was in treatment, he came to the family program. He was like, yeah, I did. I was like, oh, okay. So I went to treatment and he was mean <laughs> and I ended up, so this is when I really started kind of taking breaks from having any communication with him. He was really mean to me. My mom paid for treatment. I was in like year long treatment. I got out, I was working at Starbucks, like trying to do the deal. And I had some health insurance and I had a cavity. I needed $80 to get my cavity filled. And I just couldn't ask my mom for another penny. And so I called him and he berated me for 30 minutes. He gave me the money. But he berated me about my life and how, you know, I'm 30 years old and I'm working at Starbucks. And I mean, it was just like, ah, I was trying so hard to like live a different life. And and I discovered at that time because I had started doing really some deep work with myself. And I thought, okay, I get it. When I ask him for something, he thinks I owe him something or he thinks I've given him permission to give me feedback in my life. That point, I never asked him for another thing, not a penny, not a favor, nothing. So that was a good lesson for me. But so throughout the course of the next several years, you know, he would be mean to me and I would take a break. And then it's interesting because our mutual friend, Heidi, she was like, man, come on, call your dad. I mean, seriously, like call your dad. I didn't invite him to my wedding because I wasn't speaking to him. So I did. I called him and, and I had been married at that time. We were about to start trying to have a baby. And so he was kind of in my life at that time. And, and so then he started coming to visit and we, you know, reestablished our relationship at this point, he's divorced. And then this is when his drinking escalated. So he was a, my guess, if, if I could describe it, I would say he was a very high functioning alcoholic. Like he was brilliant. He retired at the age of 52. He did all the things, you know, right. And then he was able to like retire to Florida and it got bad quick. And so when he would you know, go on these benders and be ugly to me, I would take breaks. But I will say over the last 10 years, it got to a point that was unbearable. I've never met a free trial that I didn't like. The problem is, is that I often forget to get out of them before they start charging me. But I don't have that problem since I started using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, and I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you, up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. 
They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, the clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands, such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric, and it even stays soft, wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash struggle, promo code STRUGGLE. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ertube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. And so when it's interesting when you talk about Heidi being like, call your dad, call your dad. Was there a point at which she understood why it was you were not calling him? Yeah. She was like, man, I'm so sorry. I mean, I just thought you had like the classic daddy issues. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, Bethany, this is legit like verbal abuse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I feel like I did the opposite. Mm -hmm. I was like, cut that son of a bitch off and never talk to him again. Mm -hmm. And then you- (laughs) And then I came around. Yeah. You figured out like, oh, like you- I was telling you stories about when I was little and how I just like adored him. And you were like, oh- Yeah. I feel like there's so much more nuance and human complexity to relationships than we like to think of. Like we want to think that everything is so black and white. Everything is either forgive, reconcile, you know, reestablish, or it's cut them off, never speak to them again. And I think one of the things that your story does beautifully is sort of dive into this complexity of maybe it is not either or, maybe it's both. Maybe it's and, maybe it's sometimes this, sometimes that. So can you share with us like some of the things that went into your decision to maintain that relationship? Sure. Can I play a message for you real quick? Just because um, I think it's hard to really capture. So when my dad was not drinking, he was a a binge drinker because I think this is all part of to answer your question. And when he was not drinking, he was nice. He was decent. So, but then when he would drink, he would go off. And so here's a message. Now, the only reason I saved these messages is because at one point 
My husband was afraid that we would be in trouble from Adult Protective Services, legitimately so, because I did get a call from them. And so I wanted to document like, hey, this is the relationship. So that's the only reason I saved these. But Well, you're a coward and your mother is a coward. And I can't speak to anybody. I'd just like to know how and when and where I beat your mother up when she was pregnant. I think you've spread the message widely, and I think it's bullshit, and I want to know. Goodbye. That day, he left me about 15 messages like that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about like what kinds of factors for you went into the decision about okay. when and how to engage with him. And you, I think your first point was that a lot of his abusive behavior was contained to his like alcoholic binges. Right. When he was kind of rude and curt, just his general nature. But when he drank, he was like that. Mm. And so it was, you know, you, you talked earlier about, you know, you said, oh, this, it was so hard in it. It was so hard to figure out what to do. But so my rule was, and, it, and this was unspoken. It was like, I'll be in a relationship with you but you have to be nice. I mean, I knew I couldn't stop his drinking. I had, you know, certainly had a boundary. He couldn't drink in front of me or my son. But like, if you want to like drink away alcoholically, that's fine. But you may not speak to me like that. I will not engage in a relationship with you when you're being abusive. So what would that look like when he would do something like that? Leave you that voicemail. I would send him a text and say, hey, I love you. You may not speak to me like that. And then he would argue back and argue back. And I would just keep setting the boundary. Like, I'm finished with this conversation. I will not engage. And then it would be, and you know, his pride was so much. Like, the way that we reconnected. And then, you know, here's the truth. It's like, I had a hard time with that. Because internally for me, I understand alcoholism. And I understand that he, like, was doing that against his own will. And so I had some compassion that that part of him was something more than him being just being a jerk. Mm-hmm. That like he was under this spell, if you will, of something bigger than him. But you don't get to talk to me like that. And so like I, something inside of me said like, this is important. Like I don't want to like just totally walk away from him. And so I think it was that time when he did that. And I got this call, this random call from an unknown number And it was this lady who said, hey, I'm your dad's housekeeper. And he was in Florida and I'm in Texas. And I just got to his house and he's unresponsive on the floor and I had to call 911. And so this started the kind of the end, like the last few years where, and and this happened several times, like he would go to the hospital, I'd go down to Florida and I would go to his bedside and, you know, I would say, dad, you know, I love you. And I'd show up for him and then he would be nice for a while. And then he would drink again. And that would happen. I mean, this happened so many times. And and I think mostly what happened at this point was this is where I started going down to Florida, ending up at his bedside. And so at one point, you know, when he would come visit, it was so, I don't even have the words for it. It was so stressful because I was always on alert. I was just waiting. And this was him sober too, just waiting for, I mean, I just was like, so I was bracing myself. It was just so, I was like terrified. And then at one point he wanted to come back pretty quickly and I told him no. And then I felt guilty about it. And so I called him back and I said, Hey, what if you just come for like, you know, like a long weekend? That was me trying to have some sort of boundary. That didn't go well. He came, it was fine. But then he called again and was hateful to me. And then he sent me a three page letter about my disgusting behavior. And well, the first half of the letter was about me 
in my addiction, because I'm 20 years sober, the things I did, it was all true. I did behave like that. And the second half was about the boundaries that I set and how he did not like them and how hurt he was from them. Hmm. So for it sounds like for a long time, you would engage until his behavior became unacceptable, and then you would disengage. What was the longest period that you guys were disengaged from? A year, maybe a year and a half. I mean, in earlier parts of my life, it was four years, five years. But in the most, like the last 10 years, I would say about a year. So then as you move later into life, something shifts because he starts to actually need you. Mm -hmm. And so talk about the like extra complexity that that brings in because you go from this, you know, it's all just your behavior, right? You show up this way, I'm done. And I'm done until I don't want to be done anymore. Like it's really that simple, right? There was no like rule. It was just like until I, you know, feel ready to engage with you again. Well, and usually what that looked like was he needed me in some way. Mm. Or he would, you know, he'd go like a month or two and he'd be like, hey, how you doing? I haven't heard from you in a while. You know, it's like like nothing happened. Yeah. And, and the truth is half the time I bet he was in a blackout and he didn't remember. Yeah. So as he gets to the end of his life, though, you start having to actually care for him. And so how does that make it more complex to sort of have those boundaries. Well, what's interesting is what I did come to is I didn't have to care for him, mm-hmm. but I wanted to. Um, Talk about that. I don't know. I Will you say it again? Yeah. You said when you had to care for him, I didn't have to care for him. And I was clear about that. But I wanted to because, listen, he was such an unpleasant man. I was the only person he had in the world. He had a handful of friends who also kept him at a distance. He was an unpleasant man. And I have compassion for the fact that he was doing the best he could. And I'll tell you, most of my life, I didn't understand that. When I was a kid, my mom used to say, honey, like I'd go to my dad's house and it'd be the summer and I'd be like in the bathroom sobbing, crying. And she'd say, sweetie, that's not about you. That's about him. But I couldn't figure that out. But having done some deep spiritual and emotional work myself, what I understand is what my dad says to me or about me is not about me. That's about him. And so I was able to you know, make that line. But I, my point is, is that I had some compassion for him and I loved him. And I just like, I didn't want him. I mean, he, he was like on a, a decline. I mean, ultimately he did die of alcoholism from pancreatitis and cirrhosis of the liver, alcohol induced. And I wasn't going to let him go down like that. I was like, I'm not going to go to my grave knowing that like I didn't show up for him. Mm. So I think whenever we have these conversations about relationships and boundaries and harm and mistreatment, there's so many shoulds and shouldn'ts, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things that I, when I listen to your story, I think most people, you know, the story that they think of is like, and then I cut him off and never spoke to him again because I deserve better. But one of the things that I hear in your story or, or that are so powerful to me, number one, your decisions to engage and re-engage were never about believing that he would be different. No. Like you were clear, like, I'm re-engaging. He is the same person. He will have the same behavior. And I will probably need to disengage again at some point. Well, and it's easy in hindsight, but in the moment, and it's funny because I never knew like, what's the right thing to do? Mm. It was so hard. It was so, it felt to me like it was black and white, but I'm so thankful for the people in my life who helped me see that it was okay to, you know, set a boundary. And then when he was nice, let him back in, you know? Yeah. Because I think that's so much of the crazy making is the, I let him back in because it would be different. And then you, you know, your mm-hmm. heart is broken. And I let him back in because it would be different and a heart is broken. And that's different than you going, he's going to be the same person. Mm-hmm. And he's my dad and I want to do it. Mm-hmm. 
And then the other part was, you know, towards the end, you talked a lot about, or you talked about how I didn't have to care for him. Like mm-hmm. I was, I was not obligated to care for this person that had mistreated me so badly, mm-hmm. but that you just wanted to. Well, yeah, he's my dad. And I mean, I, you know, what I know is that like when I was little, like I just loved him. I mean, obviously I still loved him and love him, but I mean, like he was my daddy. There's so few people that I feel like can hold that space for somebody of like, you know, we want to push people and we almost want to over-moralize the other way of like, well, if you had any self-respect, well, if you had boundaries, well, you know, you can't let someone talk to you that way. Like you should da 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 whatever. And I think people forget that these are like real live people in our lives that are gray, even as horrible as the behavior sounds, right? Like at the end of the day, it is that like, man, that's my dad. Well, and you know, it's interesting that you say that because people who didn't really know the complexity of it or, you know, it's like I have this friend, a mom from school and I, you know, when she first heard about the story, she's like, oh, come on, you've talked to your dad. And then by the end, she's like, do not talk to him. (laughs) And it was all very black and white. And there were very few people who, you know, walked the path with me of this gray area where kind of a, you and Heidi particularly, and I have other friends too, that like allowed me be in this place where I was uncertain. And I mean, the part that you helped me with the most is it was just so brilliant because I said, you know, in the thick of it, I said, what, I mean, how do I not be a martyr and like still love him? And you said, well, you can still manage his healthcare and you can still talk to the facility and make talk to the doctors and make sure he's cared for. And that doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with him right now. Remember in 2018, when Border Patrol separated thousands of refugee kids from their parents, deported those parents back to their home countries while keeping the kids in the United States? Well, believe it or not, six years later, there are hundreds of families who have still not been reunited. Although we as a community may feel hopeless at times, I recently learned about an organization called Al Otro Lado, which works to reunify families. They provide holistic legal and humanitarian support to refugees, deportees, and other migrants in the U.S. and Tijuana through a multidisciplinary, client-centered, harm-reduction-based practice. Since 2018, they've reunified over 100 refugee families ripped apart by Trump's zero-tolerance policy. Once reunited, Al Otro Lado helps each family find legal representation, housing, and the counseling that they need in order to heal and get on their feet. You can find the link to donate to El Ultra Lotto in the description of this episode or go to gum.fm slash charity and donate today. You can also consider volunteering with the organization, which offers opportunities that are both in-person and virtual. The best way to get involved is by filling out an application on their website, alotrolado.org slash volunteer. That's A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. 
you get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Yeah. And you did. You went through a period of time where you didn't visit him. You didn't take him out to lunch. You didn't really even speak to him directly, but you were still really involved in his care, making sure that yeah, mm-hmm. they were caring for him, that his meds were balanced, mm-hmm. that his clothes were washed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also a great example of how you can't give a lot of like generalized advice mm-hmm. because there are these you'll find these areas and it almost reminds me of like a fine string and it feels like you have to be on one side or the other. And like, regardless of how fine that little thread, you can get in there and pull apart those little fibers and find these like creative ways to like split the wicket. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like these creative ways to honor both sides of, I do not have to submit to abuse and mistreatment. Mm-hmm. I am not obligated to care for the people that mistreat me. Mm-hmm. And this is my dad mm-hmm. and I want to, mm-hmm. and I can't leave him there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not obligated to not leave him there, but I don't want to. Right. And how can I find ways to do both of those things at the same time if you want to? Well, and it sounds so clear cut when you say that. It did not feel clear cut in the mm. moment. It was, you know, when you're in it, you can't really see some stuff. Just fumbling through. I felt like I was fumbling through, but I am just so grateful I had a support system of people who could really like genuinely and authentically help me like go to the places of like really figuring out what was happening and what I, what, how could I stay true to myself and how could I stay true to my family, my husband and my son and, and how could I still love my dad? Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, it was brutal. Yeah. I will say I have no regrets, not a one. I sat by his bedside for three days, the last three days of his life. And I, and he was unresponsive and I, and I talked to him and I have this memory of him um, taking me to the movie nine to five and I ate a box of lemon heads and like, you know, ruined my tongue from sucking on them. And I said, Hey dad, let's watch nine to five. And I put it on in the room and I crawled in bed with him and I talked to him. And I mean, I'll tell you what, in spite of the relationship, like for me, it had a good ending. I am not even a little bit mad at him. I know that he's free. I mean, for people who hear that message, I know they're like, oh, no. (laughs) I mean, dude, the guy was doing the best he could. And he loved me the only way he knew how. One of the things that, you know, when we talk about these decisions that are so hard to make, they're so great, they're so complex. You know, what do I do? Do Do I engage? Do I disengage? I think one of the important factors there that I observed in your journey with this is that so much of that decision is less about is it right or is it wrong Mm -hmm. and more about what can I authentically do and remain a whole person? Because, you know, you're someone who, I mean, you've got what, 20 years of sobriety? Mm -hmm. You have a really strong background of good therapy and good healing. You have a good support system you have like a stable family, you have like, you had the coping skills and the support system that you needed Mm -hmm. to be able to engage such a difficult, sometimes abusive person, Mm -hmm. and you yourself not deteriorate as a result. Like it would have been different choices, I think, 
had Heidi and I seen you deteriorating. Mm -hmm. Like if every time you got to that point of, okay, mistreatment is happening and I'm going to step back. If we saw that like you weren't coping through those, like it destroyed you for days or like you weren't functioning in your home or you weren't being able to show up for your kid. Or like, I think that we as your friends probably would have had very different feedback for you. Mm -hmm. And that's not like a moral good, moral bad, like, oh, you should be able to do this if you're strong enough. No, like people are just in different spaces. People Mm -hmm. have different privileges. People have different support systems. And so much of it is less about should I or shouldn't I and more about what do I have to work with today? What do I have to work with in this season? Like what emotional and supportive resources do I have to work with? Because I know for me, like one of my boundaries. And I think you're the same is that like, I cannot set myself on fire to keep somebody else warm. Mm. And it doesn't mean that I won't move heaven and earth to keep you warm if I love you and I care about you. And I can in many ways see past bad behavior to your humanity, but I can't set myself on fire to keep you warm. And I think one of the powerful things about your story is even though it felt like it was kind of this like stumbling in the dark, you know, part of the ability to engage and disengage when you did was recognizing, honestly, when you did and didn't have kind of like the resources at bay to be able to handle whatever he was kind of throwing at you. Mm -hmm. For sure. And also you said the words like right and wrong. I think there were so many times that I just wanted somebody to tell me what the right thing to do was. Nobody could do that. I had to figure it out. And what I had to figure out when I finally came to is that there was no right or wrong. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a right answer. It wasn't the right thing to do to cut him off. It wasn't the wrong thing to do. It was what I could live with. How could I sleep at night? How could I, you know, at one point I was on speakerphone with him in the car and my son was in the back seat. I hung up and my son said, mom, does he always talk to you like that? I just thought I can't have this guy around my kid. Mm. And I don't want my my son to think this is how we treat people. And this is how your parents talk to you. And and I, I was just like, oh, no, sir. Mm-mm. So there were just so many things. And I mean, the truth is, I mean, I was, I mean, I was functioning, but I was a hot mess at times. You know, I cried a lot and I cried about things that really didn't have to do with my dad. Like everything, there were times when I was so sensitive that my son having a disagreement with a friend kind of would bring me to tears. And I was just in a super sensitive spot. Yeah. And so I just don't want to make the impression that, you know, oh, I did it right and I had all the answers. Because the truth is, it felt like I was fumbling along the whole time. Yeah. Mm. We spend so much time worried about doing it right and mm-hmm. getting it right. Mm-hmm. And I think what's powerful is listening to you say, in hindsight, mm-hmm. there was very little right or wrong. Mm-hmm. There were moments of going, it was really just like moments of trying your best to operate from your values. Mm-hmm. And those are not right. Cause like there's this value of, I can't let my son be around this. Mm-hmm. There's this value of this is my dad and I don't want him to die alone. Mm-hmm. And there's this value of like, I'm a child of God and I don't want to submit to abuse. Mm-hmm. Like I can't do that. There's this value of like, he's got nobody else and I feel compassion. Mm-hmm. And there's this value of, you know, I have to show up for my family and I have to care for myself. And there's this value of, you know, I want to, you know, give of myself and help my dad. And it's like, sometimes it can feel so difficult. Like those values are all in conflict. Mm -hmm. And like, there's this perfect way to do that dance. Mm -hmm. When in reality, it's a lot of just kind of stumbling around and doing the best you can Mm -hmm. and recognizing that the best thing you can hope for is to be able to put your head on your pillow at night and go, okay, I'm all right with it. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm so glad that you got that. I did. I'm so grateful too. Thank you. This was such a wonderful, raw look at boundaries that I don't feel like people get to hear. And I really appreciate you being vulnerable and talking about it. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you being there for me the whole way. Yeah. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.